Mac Power Users Episode 524, Photographing the Stars with Andrew Burwell. Hello and welcome back to Mac Power Users. I'm Stephen Hackett and I'm joined as always by my friend and yours, Mr. David Sparks. Hey, Stephen. How are you today? I am great. It's a, it's a day off for a lot of us here in the U.S. You know, the kids are home running around. It's kind of a fun day. Well, it's not a day off, man. You're recording a podcast with me. It, it's true. And we have uh, a special guest as well. Andrew, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, Andrew, you do all sorts of cool stuff that we are going to get to. Uh, but a couple of weeks ago, I launched uh, a new podcast. I didn't mention it here. And then David got on to me for not mentioning it here. So I guess this is the part where I talk about, talk about yes, it is. my new show. Uh, you have is, a new thing. People want to hear about it. Yeah, it is called Flashback. Uh, it's a show here on Relay FM with my friend uh, Quinn Nelson. If that name sounds familiar, he's a tech YouTuber. He did that video that went, made the rounds uh, uh, several weeks ago where he completely disassembled a Mac Pro, like, completely like no two screws were still in it completely taken apart all right quinn and i've gotten to know each other over the last year or so and this podcast is is really a show about the past and so this first season we're talking about tech products and companies that didn't succeed for whatever reason and we get into uh, the reasons for that and what we can learn about them So episode one, which is up now, is about uh, the Newton, this PDA from Apple in the 1990s. Episode two, which will be out a few days after this show, uh, will be about the Microsoft Zune, you know, their iPod competitor. I'm putting competitor in air quotes because, boy, the Zune, (laughs) it was a rough, it was rough going. Well, it it is the device that added the term squirt to the digital lexicon. So it's got that going for it. And it was brown. cover that? Did you come yeah, to the yes, sport? we did. <laughs> we did. So it, uh, I think it's a lot of fun. So if you enjoy the bits of history stuff I get to do here or on 512Pixels, flashback, be right up your alley. And what's fun about it is that most of the episodes aren't going to be about Apple. So we're working on a, an outline right now about this weird electric car GM did in the 90s called the EV1. We're going to do a whole bunch of other stuff. The Google Doc is very long with ideas. So I would love if you would go check it out. I think everyone would enjoy it. It's an excellent show. I give it the uh, Max Sparky two thumbs up. I I just, it's just perfect. You know, I I don't listen actually to a lot of tech podcasts because I don't want to like color all my opinions for the show, but this is great because it's kind of outside of the usual, you know, news cycle stuff. And it's just a great show and, and a great listen. And you guys got the length right too. Yeah. Yeah. We're aiming for less than an hour an episode. So. All right, says the guy who makes a podcast. It's an hour and a half. <laughs> Everyone <laughs> just looked at how much time is left when you said that. Yeah, I know. I know, man. That hurts. That hurts. But we have a lot to cover. And Andrew, um, well, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me again. Uh, so, Andrew, you and I met last year in Houston. Um, we're going to be talking about uh, your work and your this amazing photography that that I've enjoyed for quite a while now. Uh, But tell us a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your background before we get started. I've had an interest in astronomy since I was a kid. Um, You know, I'd grown up in the South and in Houston. I'm near NASA. So I was part of the kind of junior astronauts program where I got to meet the cosmonauts and the the astronauts that landed on the moon. 
I always had an interest in astronomy, but um, didn't really take it up seriously until about three years ago. My uh, my grandfather, when I was young, gave me uh, a telescope from Sears, and I never was able to see anything with that telescope. You know, the, the sky is vast and mostly empty, and so if you don't know what you're doing, um, you can pretty much look in it all you want and never see anything. I had a friend tell me once, if you want to look at the moon, get a pair of binoculars. Don't get a telescope. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, a pair of binoculars is kind of difficult to use at times because you shake a lot. Um, yeah. Whether you know it or not, it's just difficult to hold something steady when you're really zoomed in looking at, at an object. But, um, and the same goes for telescopes. It really helps to have a a sturdy telescope mount or something that can point for you so you're not having to hold it. It wasn't until um, three years ago that I actually decided to buy a telescope. And um, I researched it a little bit. I did not make a great choice, but I made a pretty good choice in that I bought a basically a computer-controlled telescope, which uh, allowed me to point it at things that I would never have been able to find on my own. Uh, these days, telescopes come with computers built in, and uh, you can type in the name of an object or its kind of identifier, and uh, it'll point right to where it is. And that really opened up a, a world of possibilities for me. Um, and that's what kind of sparked my interest and really got me into it. But... Um, I did, uh, in my past, work for NASA at one point. Um, I was there as the electronic print director during the shuttle days, and I was in charge of mission-critical documents for the shuttle. So that was kind of like the flight cards for the astronauts, um, blueprints, one-to-one scale blueprints of shuttle parts, uh, all kinds of things. Um, That was pretty nice. I only did that for about a year before um, landing my my dream job at the time, which uh, wasn't in space, but was in video games. Uh, I ended up working for Ziff Davis Publishing in Chicago on uh, Electronic Gaming Monthly as their art director. So my background is basically in graphic design and um, mostly self-taught. I went to the University of Houston for design. But at the time, they didn't really teach courses using computer design. And I was heavily into uh, computers. Um, I had an Apple IIc, which uh, I saved up for by mowing yards for several years. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, that was my first computer. Really, really got me into computers. And um, uh, from there, you know, I I did have several PCs before coming back to the Mac. in my professional career as a designer, uh, you pretty much have to use a Mac. So I used a Mac for many years, um, designing magazines, uh, electronic gaming monthly, uh, computer gaming world. Uh, I moved out to San Francisco for a short time. I worked for a few dot coms during the late nineties, early two thousands. And then eventually found my way back to Houston where I uh, started a family. So, and, uh, and finally picked up a telescope. <laughs> Got back into it. Yeah. 
Yeah, and that's where you and I met. So I've got a, a show with Jason Snell called Liftoff, and we cover the space industry. And he and I were in Houston for a thing last year and had a meetup, and that's where, where we first met. And uh, it, it's interesting how your story sort of has Houston and the space industry sort of intertwined throughout both career and now sort of as this as this hobby. Um, for people who aren't real familiar with astrophotography – what is uh what's kind of your working definition of the field? What can people expect to to see or get out of out of this this form? One thing that I did not know when getting into it is pretty much every inter- image I've seen on the internet, I just assumed that was from the Hubble. I had no idea that people could take pictures like that using a ground-based telescope. In fact, you don't even need a large telescope at all. Uh, The Hubble is, I believe, around 16 feet in diameter, and most people do not own telescopes that size. Um, (laughs) You know, usually they're they're in the ballpark range of uh, 12 inches or smaller in terms of the the diameter of the telescope. Telescopes as small as um, 60 millimeters across, uh, which is, I want to say, I think about two and a half or three inches those can take great images of nebulas in the sky. And I had no idea that that was even possible. Um, The other thing I did not know is that it doesn't take a lot of equipment to actually get these images. Um, Certainly for, there are some really complex kind of deep sky imaging that you can do, which does require a fairly robust setup. But for the average user, you can basically take a DSLR on a tripod uh, with a really fast wide angle lens, and you can take pictures of the Milky Way. Um, obviously, you can take pictures of the moon, it's a very bright object. But uh, deep sky photography is, is possible with a, um, with a simple DSLR. You know, you can actually enhance that a little bit. Your exposure time is limited with a DSLR and a tripod, usually less than about 20 seconds, which is not really enough to get um, good deep sky images. When, when I do an image, I, I can spend anywhere between 10 hours and 40 hours on a single image. But a DSLR, you, you can add to that like a sky tracker, which is a relatively inexpensive piece of hardware, which goes on your tripod and helps your DSLR track the stars as the Earth rotates. And that allows you to get um, images of galaxies and nebulas with the DSLR. Cool. Yeah, and we'll we'll get into to some more of the specifics as we as we go about. But take, taking a step back from that, what I enjoy so much about your work and other people in this field is that it gives us vision and sight into things in our in our galaxy and beyond that we we don't get deceived just by looking up at the night sky with her naked eye that you're bringing these, these worlds and these locations down to us in a way that is so inspiring and, and honestly artistic, but it is a, a real image of a real thing out there in the sky. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, there's, there's an amazing amount of objects, basically unlimited uh, of things up there to see. You just have to have the time and patience to um, decide to take a picture of them. <laughs> And, and if you're listening at home in front of a computer or a device, uh, go to MacObservatory.com. That's Andrew's website. And he's got 
as the equipment we talk about throughout the show, he's got pictures of it up there and some of his amazing shots. And, and we'll put some into the, the newsletter as well in the show notes. But it, it is incredible. And, and like you said, I would, like you, before we started prepping the show, always thought that it was always Hubble. That I, I had learned very early that you're not supposed to take pictures through the atmosphere of the stars. They'll never be good. Right. Apparently, apparently I was wrong. <laughs> yeah, it, it does help to be in outer space when you take pictures, <laughs> but um, it can be done, you know, from land. And, and there are, you know, the atmospheric kind of turbulence can slow down to some degree on certain days and, uh, you know, based on how steady the temperature is. And that helps take those photos from Earth. You can still shoot through really turbulent atmosphere. But um, your images will be slightly blurry. Does it matter? Like, I know looking at the stars from a city is harder than it is out in the country where there's not all that extra light. Does that matter for this type of photography as well? It does, definitely. Light pollution is is a huge hindrance to astrophotography. I actually live in a, in a location just south of Houston, which is, if you search on the internet, you can find... Um, basically light pollution maps and uh, you can look up where you live and you can see how much light, uh, light pollution is there. Basically in my area, the, the scale is from zero to nine and I'm at about a seven or eight uh, on the scale. So which nine is the worst zero would be the best sky. So I live in a pretty light polluted area. But it is possible using some techniques to kind of shoot through the light pollution um, so that it does not have an effect on your images. If you're trying to shoot things like the Milky Way with a DSLR and no real special equipment, you would definitely need to go travel to a darker site. You know, most state parks, um, typically pretty dark. Uh, they're outside of a city and it's easy to go there and set up a tripod and get some really nice images. Um, the light pollution has, uh, an additional effect that if you have to shoot through it, it usually doubles or quadruples the amount of time you have to spend on imaging a single object. Basically you have to set your exposures so that you don't expose so long that the light pollution takes over keeping the, the exposure short enough that you can still see the object, but the light pollution isn't overpowering. And that just means that you have to take a lot more images um, to get to kind of a final final photo. Well, it, it is pretty remarkable, your website. And clearly, this is something beyond a hobby for you. So we want to learn all about how to do this with your Apple hardware. And we're about to put you to the question. Hope you're okay. <laughs> all right. This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you by 1Password. We live in a complicated age with countless online accounts, and each one of those accounts needs a secure, unique password to keep us safe. That's where 1Password comes in. You can use it to create strong, unique passwords, and the best part is you don't have to remember them because they're all stored in your vault. You simply log into to 1Password, and if you're on an iPhone or iPad, you can use Face ID, you can use Touch ID, or just enter the password, and you have access to all of those logins. 1Password for Families is a great feature because we have passwords that we need to share with our significant others, maybe our kids, maybe our parents, and it gives you the full functionality of 1Password. So you can set up multiple vaults. So for instance, you could have one that you share 
with your significant other and then another that you share with the kids. Maybe they need the Netflix or Hulu password, but they probably don't need the password to your credit card account. One password works across a wide range of browsers and devices. I have it on all of my devices, my iPhone, iPad, Macs, my Pixel phone, and I know that I can get into anything I need to no matter where I am. Head on over to onepassword.com slash MPU to learn more and to sign up for a free 30-day trial. When you do sign up, you'll get 20% off. Once again, that's onepassword.com slash MPU. So let's start with uh, with computer hardware, and we'll, we'll work our way towards towards telescopes. But one thing that is right in the name of your website is that you were doing a lot of this processing with a Mac. So what are you using? Yeah, so right now to process the images, I use uh, the iMac Pro, which when it came out, I've actually, I've always owned Pro computers, Mac Pros. Up until the iMac Pro, I did not spring for the uh, the new Mac Pro, which I would have loved to have had. Before this, I had the uh, the 2013 iMac Pro, but um, I got a pretty good deal on on the iMac Pro. You know, when they first came out, I think it was maybe CompUSA had like thousand dollars off or something. Mm-hmm. So I have the base model, sure, um, where I got a really good discount, and that made it worth kind of springing for. But um, you know, these new Mac Pros are, are reaching a territory that's a little bit uh, in question for me. But, um, you know, the power of the Mac Pro is super important for stuff like this. Basically, every image I take is around a two-minute exposure. And each file is between 30 and 50 megabytes in size. Uh, because you're taking raw image at 16-bit depth. And in the way that this astrophotography stuff works is that you're basically going to stack all these images. It's kind of like what the iPhone does for um, night mode. Basically what it's doing is it's, you're taking a lot of sequential images. You're using the stars in the images to kind of align the frames so that they're all aligned on each other. And then you merge them all together into a single photo. Um, But what you end up doing is I've taken as many as a thousand images for a single final photo and processing a thousand 50 gigabyte images is a ridiculous strain on a computer. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Even my, my, uh, my iMac pro can take as many as eight hours to um, align those images to each other to normalize the light variances between them and then to stack them into a final image. Not, not to mention the, the immense amount of hard drive space that's, uh, that's kind of temporarily required to start storing that data as it adds in each, each image you've taken. Yeah. So the first thing is I never imagined it would be a thousand images for this. It doesn't have to be. It's just that in my particular situation, because of the light pollution, yeah. I have to do shorter exposures. If you were out in the middle of a dark area, you could probably take 10 minute, 20 minute, one hour long exposures and you'd have a lot less to to stack. Yeah. But, but that's kind of cool. And I, I'm imagining that uh, you're getting ready to go to bed, you push the button and then you wake up the next morning to find out what you got. 
Yes, that's that's exactly how it works. And then tomorrow <laughs> you get to try again. <laughs> right, right. It's kind of like a return to the old school way of developing photos where, you know, now we hit the, sh- the shutter button on our phones and we know instantly what we have. It used to be you had to go into a dark room and it would emerge over time. You've sort of gone back to that with just lots of more data. Oh, yeah. And the funny thing is about astrophotography is these days it's relatively simple. You know, 15 years ago, before digital cameras, they were doing this with film and non-computer controlled mounts. And they were literally looking through the telescope at a star, trying to keep it in a crosshair while film was being exposed. Manually dialing it in, I guess. I don't know. That's crazy. Yes. (laughs) Well, listen, a thousand images. I want to talk about storage. Um, Okay. I mean, everybody's always got storage problems. I think you are the poster child. Uh, How do you manage that much data? I mean, I'm presuming you don't have a 20 terabyte SSD inside that iMac Pro. No, I don't. (laughs) Um, I've actually got, two uh RAID arrays set up. Yeah. They both have about eight terabytes in them. So they're just uh direct direct connected through uh I guess Thunderbolt and they're the uh Lacey uh kind of two two big devices. Yeah. yeah. The kind of the the Apple friendly one that let's yeah, see. Yeah. yeah. So I've got a pair of them. One is one is for backup and one is for storage. And they're running just spinning hard drives, right? Yeah. Or, yeah. yeah. Now, now, when you're doing the processing, though, is it hitting the images from the Lassie, uh, from the RAID array, or, or have you got the actual working stuff on your iMac Pro? Yeah, I bring I bring the working stuff onto the iMac Pro because you actually need speed in processing. Uh, you need really fast. So I'm thinking access. that that could be that eight hours could turn into twenty four hours if you put it on the the Lassie. Oh yeah, definitely. Interesting. All right. Well, so so they they truly are kind of just backup drives for you. Pretty much, I, I store all the images that I take on there um, because of the way astrophotography works, and that the images are additive. Basically, light comes in and hits the sensor randomly, so I could actually go back and image an object a second time, or third time, or fourth time, and it would only add to the data that I've already got. So I tend to save everything that I shoot in case I revisit those objects wanting to get a better image. So like if there's a nebula and you shoot it on Tuesday, am I understanding you could go back on Friday and shoot it again because the stars relative to each other aren't moving and you could add, that's crazy. That is crazy. You can even go back like the following year. I mean, the time of the universe is... uh, (laughs) <laughs> yeah so thanks. long that yeah. there's virtually no visual change year to year yeah i mean you uh, as short as we live in comparison you could go back and do it after you retire and you could still add to that image pretty much get a better camera get a better lens interesting now presumably you're not storing all these images in apple photos <laughs> no. which what's your mechanism for like tracking all these files and keeping them together so i use a program called um Oddly enough, it's it's called Observatory. Okay, so there's software and, for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, a developer um, called uh, Code Obsession created this uh, piece of software called Observatory that basically allows you to catalog and do some very very light image processing. I would not normally I wouldn't use the image processing capabilities of it because there's 
better stuff, better dedicated stuff out there, but it is amazing for cataloging. Um, it will do uh, a feature which is called plate solving, which basically what that does is it looks at all the stars in your image and it basically calculates the distance between the stars and compares it against known star databases that the government holds. And, um, and then it can tell you specifically uh, what your image is of and what objects are within your image. So sometimes you might be shooting a single galaxy, um, but there's actually multiple faint galaxies in your image that also get into, into there. This will catalog all those objects uh, as well as your, your files. And then you can retrieve them just by searching. <laughs> Crazy. Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, I'm looking through the the screenshots of this application and it's such a good example of like seemingly like really cool Mac software. Like it does something that most people don't need, but it seems like it does it really well and is is really thought through. Yeah, I mean they this program even allows you to do things like pull out of the Hubble Legacy Archive for research purposes. So you can look at things that the Hubble has taken pull it into your compared to what you, what your images are. Uh, it's, it's pretty fascinating. Yeah. It would seem to me though, I guess that you've got both itches scratch. You've got powerful hardware to do the image processing and robust storage. That's a lot of terabytes, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I feel like I, I'm always short. I need more. <laughs> I'm starting to delete some of my very first images <laughs> that I've taken. Which, I, which, you know, uh, I've come a long way since my first photo, so uh, I'm, I'm more willing to give up some of the earlier stuff that wasn't quite as good a quality. But, I mean, can you imagine, Stephen, a, a technology where you can improve the quality of that nebula shot with every image you take of it, not only today, but 10 years from now? How hard it would be to delete anything? Yeah, I mean, I would never delete. I would. I'd buy more hard drive space, but it's amazing too, how different this seems than any other sort of photography that, that at least that I've ever tried, right. Where you have one moment in time or a couple of moments in time, but even, you know, shooting a picture of the same building year after year that changes and breaks down, right. As, as things age and the scale of this is so different from anything most of us ever work with. It's really fascinating. Yeah, there are actually some really cool objects that you can take pictures of that are affected by shorter periods of time, um, specifically like supernovas. If you photograph a supernova remnant um, from year to year to year, you can actually see some very slight change as the gas cloud expands. I'm, I'm kind of surprised there's not some sort of like open source community on this where everybody contributes images of specific celestial objects so you have like a crowdsourcing effect there there you can do that i mean obviously there's online image archives like uh, they're similar to Flickr. Um, astrobin is, is one that i use where all the kind of amateur photographers store their stuff and you do see photographers collaborate on imaging different objects um, which is kind of neat one thing um, about this hobby is that you know, all the companies and, and the government that um, run satellites that do imaging and whatnot, there's still a finite amount of stuff that they can image um, at a time. You know, it's it's not uncommon for scientists to wait months and months on end 
for just one evening using the Hubble. Um, but the the benefit that amateur astronomy brings is that you have thousands and thousands of users that can look at all the rest of the sky and they're not beholden to kind of scientific projects per se. They can just point their telescope anywhere they want. And so oftentimes, a lot of discoveries are actually made by amateur astronomers, whether they detect like new supernovas or new comets um, or impact events. You know, somebody in North Houston this last year um, photographed uh, an asteroid impacting the moon. We've had amateur astronomers photograph, uh, you know, a comet impacting Jupiter uh, so it's it's pretty amazing what happens when there's suddenly thousands of people taking pictures of the sky as opposed to, you know, just scientists or, or people that have access to the Hubble. So if you ever find the the meteor that's heading straight for the Earth and you discover it with their things as the Mac Observatory, you should name it something like Performa, right? <laughs> sure. <laughs> It'd be sad if we all got taken out by a Bondi Blue. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we haven't talked much about your life with iOS. Do, do iOS devices play into this in any way, or uh, are they sort of separate from this type of work? iOS does play into it some. You can actually connect uh, an iPhone. They have actually special adapters for iPhones to uh, attach them to the eyepiece of a telescope so that you can take um, pretty simplistic images through it. Um, Obviously, you can't do real long exposure stuff, but it's great for taking pictures of the moon, taking pictures of the planets. Um, But your your ability to kind of control exposure, uh, both time and uh, gain, and, you know, all, all the functions of a camera are fairly limited on the phone. So it, there's there's a small set of things that you can actually image with a phone. But there's definitely a ton of applications um, that you can get. I use kind of planetarium applications. Uh, the compass in the phone is great for this uh, because obviously if, if I'm trying to set up my telescope, um, one of the first steps that you do is you align it to the stars so that the telescope knows where it's pointed. Well, I don't necessarily know every star's name by heart. And, um, and that's how you're, you're working the, the telescope. Um, the mount is, is to control it by pointing at stars by their name. So it's very helpful to have a planetarium software on your, on your phone that has a compass. So you can kind of aim it in the general direction of the stars you're looking at. And you can find the name of that star so that you can plug it into the telescope mount. Or if you just want to know what you're looking at, I mean, just as a casual observer, um, having a planetarium program is great. You know, you see that bright object in the sky, you think it's a star, but it turns out it's Jupiter or Venus or one of the planets. So it's very nice to have access to something like that. Um, There are more complex iOS apps that, that do add some really cool features. Um, One that I use is called Observer Pro. Um, Basically, what it allows you to do is to define a custom horizon. Um, And what that is, is is when you're, let's say you're in your backyard and you're trying to look out at the sky, but you've got trees in the way. Um, How do you tell your app, like, 
there's a tree here and I can't see what's behind it. And an app like Observer Pro allows you to use the built-in camera and compass to draw an outline of your horizon. And then it has kind of the added feature of once you've got your custom horizon in there, you can um, say what objects are visible outside of my horizon or with my horizon. Uh, And it'll say, you know, these are the objects that you can see that aren't blocked by anything on your horizon. And um, these are the objects that are going to be up the longest. These are the objects that are going to be up the shortest. And that helps somebody like me, like plan what to take pictures of. It's interesting because, you know, for like taking a picture of your dog, the computational photography advantages are really nice because it's so good at, at putting together an instant in time. But you're doing something here where the computational photography is something entirely different. What you want is just a really clean image without the computer going in and making a lot of changes before you feed it all into your iMac Pro. So it really is just a different kind of photography. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Text Expander. Start automating text today with Text Expander. Go to textexpander.com/podcasts. Let them know you heard about it at the Mac Power Users and you'll get 20% off. Text Expander is one of my favorite productivity tools because with Text Expander, you make snippets for all those things you type repetitively and use them everywhere like word processors, email, messaging apps and online forms. With Text Expander, you can customize your snippets with fill-in and pop-up fields and more. You can sign up for their free webinars, including power user tips with me, which is going to be at the end of February. So if you're listening to this, you need to go sign up for that right now and support team productivity with co-webinars with Help Scout in March. Manage and share snippets in your company with Text Expander 2. I've got a Text Expander account for the Max Sparky business, and my uh, assistant has access to the snippets. So when I make changes, they just automatically populate to her computer. It's an awesome way to stay in touch with your customers and send out your best words. Text Expander is available for Mac OS, Windows, Chrome, iPhone, and iPad. Show listeners get 20% off their first year. That's right. Save yourself 20%. Go to textexpander.com slash podcast to learn more about Text Expander and make sure to let them know you heard about it on the Mac Power Users. Now we're going to talk about getting people started on this and because I know some listeners will be interested and we're going to talk through all sorts of hardware for that. But I, I just thought it'd be fun to talk about going in, you know, what is your current gear? You know, what's your big glass now that you're using to take these beautiful images with? The piece of equipment that I'm using right now, mostly uh, is what's called the Celestron edge HD 11 inch telescope. It's big enough and well-made enough <laughs> that it's considered a real scientific piece of gear. I actually bought it secondhand, so I did not pay full price, but it's a pretty pricey piece of hardware. An 11-inch scope is really large, so it requires a fairly robust mount that it sits on. The mount is basically like the tripod and head that aims the telescope. So I I use what's called a a 10-micron GM1000 uh, mount. It's extremely accurate. Um, It has, uh, basically, it has hardware encoders built into it so that it knows precisely where it's pointed at all times. Um, Most mounts are not that sophisticated. 
they have clutches on them so that you can undo the clutch and you can move the telescope freely and point it in any direction. But in most mounts, the, the mount does not know where you're pointing it at that point. Um, and basically, if you've aligned your telescope and you release the clutches and point it around somewhere else, uh, it's lost track of where you are. But with the hardware encoders, uh, this particular mount knows where you are at all times. It's very helpful when you have like heavy wind gusts that can blow the mount. You are so zoomed in when taking an image that um, wind gusts, ground vibrations, those types of things affect the, the image that you're taking. When you're doing a two-minute exposure, if there's a vibration in the ground or a slight wind gust that, that just slightly bumps your mount, um, you get a blurry image and you don't want that. Uh, so it's important with such a large telescope to have that kind of control over your equipment. I, I could see where you'd almost be afraid to even walk around it while it was shooting. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I used to. I have a, a wooden deck. And of course, anytime you step on that thing, you let the dogs outside, they run across the deck, you got blurry images. Um, I have stopped s- s- since then putting it on the deck and, and putting it on kind of the concrete pathway where it's a little more stable. I can just see the checklist. Okay, have the dogs done their business? Have yeah, we? Uh... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you have to be sure that everyone is done for the night going outside because you're going to be taking pictures. And beyond that, uh, I, I do not use a DSLR. Um, there's limitations with DSLRs. People actually take some really, really amazing long exposure images with DSLRs. But one thing that sets a DSLR apart from a dedicated astronomy camera is cooling. As long as you're, you have that sensor in the camera active, it's heating up. Electricity is passing through it. The chip itself is warming up. And so dedicated astronomy cameras have built-in cooling, which can cool them as low as negative 40 degrees below ambient temperature. And that keeps the noise levels to to a minimum. On a DSLR, as you're exposing longer and longer and longer, you begin to get hot pixels in your image, like these bright red, bright green pixels from the sensor heating up. And so you need to counteract all that. Um, with some cooling, especially for very long exposures. So I have a dedicated camera. In addition to that, um, there is a secondary, typically a secondary camera and telescope. It's a smaller telescope, which is called a guide scope. Uh, The movements of, of your main mount have to be incredibly precise. And most of these telescope mounts are Chinese made, Um, They don't have great quality control. You know, just the gear imperfections in the gear that turns to move the mount show up as a very, very slight wobble. And so you what you use is a is a guide camera and a guide telescope mounted on top of your your regular imaging telescope to its entire goal is just to watch a single star and confirm the movement of the mount itself. And if the mount is not moving precisely where it should be, it sends a correction to the mount to fix that movement. I mean, one of the things that's amazing on your website is all the cabling you've got going on with this rig. (laughs) I mean, it's clearly, there's a lot going on here. 
Oh, yeah. And, and cabling plays into, you know, how good your images are. If your cable drags, if it lays across a piece of equipment and snags, um, you've got to tie all that up to keep it from um, causing any of your images to be ruined. As silly as it sounds, I had no idea there was such a thing as a sensor for a telescope, but it's obvious that there would be such a thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> I just never really thought about it. <laughs> but yeah, why not? I mean, a, a traditional SLR wouldn't make sense for that. But not everyone's going to go out and buy an 11-inch telescope and uh, and a dedicated sensor, but there's lots of people interested in it. I, I have a DSLR, and I'll tell you, I've always wanted to take a good picture of the moon, and every time I try, I don't seem to be able to do it. Um, what if folks out there are interested in kind of getting started with this? What, what are some suggestions? Basically a, a wide angle lens, like a 12 or 14 millimeter lens, something that's fast, um, you know, F2, F1.8, F1.2, something around that speed. Yeah. You can put that DSLR on a tripod. In fact, it doesn't even have to be that wide of an angle. It, it really only needs to be that wide of an angle if you want to shoot the Milky Way. But let's say you want to shoot a portion of the Milky Way. You could use uh, Canon makes uh, a $99 50-millimeter lens that's pretty fast. I think it's around F2. Yeah, I think it's a 1.8 if memory serves. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's all you need. That will take a big chunk of the Milky Way, which the Milky Way is basically all nebulosity. Uh, I mean, there's stars in there, but that's where when you see pictures of nebulas, most of that is in the Milky Way. And so you can image that with a regular SLR, just a 20-second exposure, uh, ISO 1600 or so. Any longer than that, and you begin to see the rotation of the Earth in your image, the stars begin to stretch out. But you can take some pretty amazing images just with that basic setup. Uh, most of the images that you see of the Milky Way are are done like that. Um, and you, you can do a Google search for those images and see what they look like. All right. So just, I'm going to be an idiot here. Where am I supposed to point the camera? I mean, so I've got a tripod and a DSLR. If I want to do it tonight, where do I point it? <laughs> I don't even well, know. So if you, obviously if, if you don't know what you're looking at, yeah, you're like me when I was a kid trying to aim that Sears telescope, you're not going to see anything. <laughs> Um, and right now is actually not Milky Way season. Right now it's Galaxy season. Okay. Uh, so, basically, yeah. the Milky I'm Way is so on much the, today. <laughs> yeah, Milky, the Milky Way is on the other side of the Earth. Yeah. And that's why a lot of my recent photos on my website are galaxies, and that's because that's what's out there for me to see right now. It's like fishing, right? You got to go like when the right fish are biting. <laughs> sure, sure. And um, but you know those planetarium maps for your iPhone—that's how you know yeah. what you're looking at. And where to aim. Uh, that, that's really helpful to have that so you know what you're taking a picture of. Before those apps showed up, uh, how did people know what they were looking at? I mean, were there charts? Were there just people just knew? Uh, how did that work? Uh, there's printed star charts. Basically, you and they make some some kind of handy ones now that, that are like uh, a circular disc that's that you can kind of rotate around to the month that you're at and it'll show you basically what's in the sky at the time but they have paper charts that you can reference to find objects and the way most traditional astronomy is done is they do what's called star hopping if they know for instance that polaris is the north star 
it's at the end of the the dipper constellation mm -hmm. they can you know they can do what's called star hopping they basically say i know what this star is i'm gonna hop two stars over to this star and i know what that star is and then two more stars over this direction and now i know that i'm pointed near where this object is supposed to be yeah that makes a lot of sense that if you have a point of reference you can get to where you need to go yeah it's so much easier with an iPhone app though. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I, I, I've checked out some of those apps and we'll have a link in the show notes. You have this really great page on your site about uh, iOS applications that can be helpful in this. And I recognize a lot of these names. I've played with a lot of them myself and it is as simple as holding your phone up to the sky and using all the, the data and sensors in the phone. And it, it, it's amazing what it can work out for you. Yeah, some phone apps now even use the camera in kind of like an augmented reality mode where if if it's dark enough, you can see the stars through the camera and it overlays the map on top of what your camera is seeing. So you can kind of get a better view on what you're looking at. Mm -hmm. I have found that those, those types of things are not great if you live in an area that's really light polluted like I do. Uh, because you can't really see the stars. But it does open up so much. I mean, just the other night, we were um, taking a walk, and we saw a really bright star, and we figured it was a planet, but we had no idea which one. And you literally, you pull your phone out of your pocket and point it at, this, at the bright star, and it tells you what it is. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. I'm a big fan of uh, Star Walk 2 for that. It's the one that I've used. I've used it with my kids before. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, if we're out on a trip and we can look around, I can show them things, and... Yeah, it's, it's such a good use of AR. AR is one of those things that I think I at least sort of struggle to see its utility in a lot of areas, but this is one that I think makes a lot of sense. Oh, yeah. It's pretty neat when it works well. This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you by FreshBooks. Go to freshbooks.com slash MPU and enter the code MACPOWERUSERS for an unrestricted 30-day free trial. If you're a freelancer, you probably want and need to save time. And our friends at FreshBooks can help you do just that with their simple cloud accounting software. By simplifying tasks like invoicing, tracking expenses, and getting paid online, FreshBooks has drastically reduced the time it takes for over 10 million people to deal with their paperwork, including me. The new notification center is like your personal assistant. You'll always know what's changed in your business since the last time you logged in and what needs to be dealt with first. And when you email a client to an invoice, FreshBooks can show you whether or not they've seen it, which puts an end to the guessing game. If you're listening to this and you have not tried FreshBooks yet, now is the time. They're offering an unrestricted 30-day free trial for listeners of this show. There's no credit card required. All you have to do is go to freshbooks.com MPU and enter the code MACPOWERUSERS in the How Did You Hear About Us section. Once again, that's freshbooks.com MPU. I would like to take a minute to um, to wind back a little bit on the software side. We talked about the uh, software for managing the images, but we haven't talked about yet. You know what software is grinding a thousand images together for you overnight? Sure. So there's there's a handful of apps out. There's um, there's some open source software uh, that can be used that's free. Uh, there is some some paid software, and I I do use the paid software. Um, it tends to be a little more robust and kind of feature rich, but, uh, 
I use an application called Astro Pixel Processor. It's relatively new, but basically it does all my image stacking and pre-processing. So I only use it for a part of the process to make a final image. Basically, it's doing, it's taking the thousand images, it's aligning them uh, based on the stars that it picks up in them. It is um, balancing them for the amount of light. Like, let's say you have a light cloud that passes in front in a several frames. You know, that frame is going to be a little bit brighter. Um, so it kind of balances out the amount of light that's in each frame so that they're more evenly lit when they're combined. Um, it does some kind of quality checks where it looks at uh, what's called the FWHM of a star. It uh, stands for full width, half maximum. It's actually measuring the width of your star, uh, basically how much in focus that star is. With, with turbulence in the atmosphere, some of your images aren't going to be as in focus because that kind of heat wave that you see affects how crisp and sharp the images are, how much detail you can get out of them. So it's measuring the sharpness of every frame. It's also measuring the number of stars in every frame. So if you can imagine a cloud passes in front, you're going to have less stars visible. Um, and so you might want to throw away some of those frames because they affect the overall final image quality. So you're doing a little bit of a quality control as well as kind of the actual processing of the images and combining them. And it combines them into a, uh, into a single stack. And then from there, what you're doing with the software is you're removing any of the light pollution. It's typically called gradient removal because you're, you're so zoomed in, you're only seeing a, a small bit of light pollution. And if you ever look at out the horizon, it's brighter close to the ground sure. and darker the more the higher you look. Um, and that's because the light is emanating from the ground up. And that creates a gradient over your image. Mm. And so what you're doing is you're going to subtract that gradient from the image. Um, it measures the gradient from top to bottom of your frame. And it applies basically the exact inverse of that gradient to remove it. And that gets you a clean, flat image. Uh, the next step that you're doing is you are um, calibrating the background. So every camera, if you use a color camera, uh, so I have color and monochrome cameras. Uh, a color camera is it's just a standard DSLR chip. And, it, and uh, on every DSLR chip, they have what's called a Bayer matrix. What that is, is it's basically a color filter over every single pixel of the sensor. So you have a a red color over one pixel, a green color over the next, a blue over the next, and and they alternate. And in the case of most SLRs, green is the dominant color. So you actually have two green pixels for every red and blue. And uh, so in the next step, what you're doing is you're neutralizing the background. After you've removed out the light pollution, you're making sure that the black sky uh, of space is actually black. And so it looks at that image and it basically says, well, I detect too much green here because of your camera and I'm going to make the green, red and blue be equal. And it turns it into a true neutral black in the background. And that, of course, affects the color of your overall image. Um, the next step that you do 
is you do uh, color calibration on the stars. So we, science, uh, <laughs> you know, real astronomers know what the color values are of actual stars. You know, there's red stars, there's blue stars, there's yellow stars, and they know the color temperatures that those stars are supposed to be. And so you do uh, kind of another set of calibration of your image based on the color of the stars. So it looks at all the stars in your image and it says, okay, this is the best average color correction that needs to be applied to your image because we know what those stars are supposed to look like. And the picture you took, the stars didn't look that way. So it adjusts that. And then you get, that basically gives you your final kind of calibrated image. Um, there's some detail that I've left out that that's a lot more nuanced, but it has to do with kind of, you have to have an unbelievably sensitive camera chip. And most of the camera chips in these astronomy cameras actually is uh, an SLR chip. Sure. It's just put into a different body with a cooler and fans um, because those are the sensors that camera manufacturers make. So that's what, what's used in this field. But things like um, just the flow of electrons across the sensor creates a certain pattern of noise. And that's called the bias of your image. And so um, you also, in addition to taking uh, these frames of, of the galaxies or stars or nebulas, you have to take a series of calibration frames. You take a bias image, which is the shortest exposure you can go on the camera. That is giving you what that electrical flux looks like on your chip. And then you can subtract that out of your image. Uh, the other thing you, you might have happen is you might have dust on your lens, whether it's a DSR lens or it's your telescope. And what you take there is you take what's called a flat frame. You put a, a bright, white, evenly lit piece of plexiglass or i've used my ipad i'll load up a pure white image i'll lay my ipad across the front of my telescope and i'll take a couple images of that and what that does is it makes the dust show up makes only the dust and the imperfections of your your lens system appear in those images and then you can subtract that out of your astronomy images so that all the dust is removed out of your scene so you've removed imperfections in the processor. You've removed imperfections um, just from dust and stuff accumulating on your lens or your telescope. And then the last thing that you do is you take uh, pictures with the lens cap on. And this, um, what this does is, let's say you take a two-minute exposure. You take what's called a two-minute dark frame. So you put the lens cover over your telescope or your camera, and you expose it for the same length. And what that does, that shows you where the heat noise is in your sensor. And then you can use that to remove the heat noise from your image. And, the, and this software does all these steps? or do This you... software does all these steps. Wow. Of course, you have to take all the different calibration frames, the different types of them. Um, and you basically, it has a control panel where you say, here's my light frames. Those are your frames of your, your stars or your galaxy. Here's my dark frames, here's my bias frames, and here's my flat frames. And then it knows what to do with all those different frames to get you a final image. And if you've ever taken, um, do you all know what a histogram is? Sure. Yep. 
So histogram on your camera basically shows the amount of light that's being captured. It's like a graph. And normally what it looks like is it looks like a little hill. Uh, on one end, you have dark pixels of the graph. And on the other end, you have light pixels. And when you take a regular color photograph, what you see there is that hill represents the amount of brightness in your image. And so you have very few dark pixels, very few super bright pixels. Most of your image data is right in the middle, and that's why it looks like a hill. Um, but when you take astronomy photos, they're mostly black. In fact, any individual frame, you might only see a handful of stars. You don't actually see the galaxy or nebula. The sensitivity of the camera chip has to be really, really sensitive. And this is why it, it has an effect to take all those calibration frames, because those things affect what your final image is. And if you look at the histogram of an individual shot of a galaxy, it'll be the majority of it will be black. You'll only see a peak far left on the black side of the histogram. All your image data is there in that tiny little sliver of black. And so um, once you have run through this software, Astro Pixel Processor, and you get your final stacked calibrated image, you have to do what's called image processing. And that's where you take that image that's been stacked and you now process it. You have to get that histogram from that tiny sliver that's all black stretched out so that it looks more like a normal histogram of a bright photograph that you would take. Otherwise, you don't see anything. You, you know, when you're looking at your, your final stacked image, it just looks like a black image with a couple of stars. And the reason you see the stars is because they're the brightest thing in that image. But all the data for the galaxy or the nebula is stored, hidden in that black area. And so... I use a program called PixInsight, which is um, it's not a cheap piece of software. It's kind of the Photoshop for astrophotography. And you actually, you can use Photoshop, um, but its tools are more geared towards standard image processing. PixInsight is kind of, a, a lot of people complain about it because it's highly complex. It's basically was created by what seems like a mad scientist of image processing, <laughs> most of the like control panels and, you know, tools that you have to edit, they're asking you for numerical values. Uh, it's not like, uh, it was not designed by somebody who knows, um, user interface design. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it looks like it was designed by a crazy scientist. So it is not very straightforward. It takes a long time to learn it well. And, and there's a lot of duplication of features that you might find in Photoshop. But they're very kind of esoterically named. And the way you utilize those functions in, in the software is not very straightforward. But PixInsight was designed from the ground up specifically with processing astrophotography images. And so there are a lot of unique tools for combating things like atmospheric dispersion, um, removing light pollution, uh, although I do do that in AstroPixel Processor. But um, it has its own set of tools for, uh, for integration, for processing, um, similar to 
Astro Pixel processor, but but this kind of goes beyond that into the processing realm of the final image, where your goal is really to make the most beautiful image that you can make. So one of the first things that you do in this type of software is you stretch your image. You take that sliver on the histogram that's all black and you stretch it till it goes the width of your histogram. And that is what allows it to kind of bring out the image that you've taken, that stretching capability. And once you've stretched your image from there on out, it's basically, I need to apply some sharpening because the the atmosphere was really turbulent or uh, I want to enhance kind of the dust lanes of the galaxy. So I'm going to run this special feature or I want to um, increase the saturation because the color information is not all there unless you increase the saturation. You know, it basically is how you finalize your image once once you've calibrated it. A couple of questions. One I have, I know this is a super like novice question, but all the stuff you're describing, you never talked about colorization of the nebulae themselves. And it's always fascinating the colors of these nebula. And even look at your website, you know, they're different ones with different colors. Is that that's not the computer doing that, right? That is the nebula, correct? Yes and no. Okay. So if you look at my website and you see some of the red nebulas, that is the actual color that you would see if you shot it with a, a DSLR or an RGB camera. Um, that's the natural visual color of that galaxy. And the reason it's red is it's mostly hydrogen alpha gas. And... To get images like Hubble takes, uh, Hubble basically shoots monochromatic images. So I have a monochrome sensor. Mm-hmm. That's basically uh, a camera sensor with no color matrix over it, no Bayer matrix, how I was kind of describing earlier. It's just the flat sensor with no filters over it. And that basically allows you to, to take the most pure collection of light that you can. Now, In that mono camera, obviously only shooting with that, you get black and white images. Um, So what what I use is a filter wheel. And it's basically a mechanical wheel that has uh, an array of filters screwed into it, color filters that cover up that monochrome lens. And so I have regular RGB filters. So I have a red one, a blue one, and a green one. And um, they move into position in front of the camera sensor, and I will shoot only blue light or only red light or only green light. But then in addition to that, for nebulas, you need to capture some of these different wavelengths of light. So hydrogen alpha, oxygen uh, three, um, uh, sulfur. You have special filters that capture that type of light. So if you look at kind of the kind of the orange and blue nebulas, that is what you typically see from a Hubble telescope. And those images were processed using the Hubble palette, which is um, that kind of orange, blue, and a little bit of red in there. And that uses those the hydrogen alpha, the um, sulfur, and the oxygen filters. So you're, you're filtering for just the oxygen gases or just just the sulfur gases or just the hydrogen alpha. And um, 
then you're assigning manually assigning a color to them. You're saying, I want the hydrogen to be this color. I want the oxygen to be this color or whatever. And then you combine those images into a color photo. And it's, and it's in this case, those kind of orange and blue images are kind of, that's what's called the Hubble palette. Now I could actually pick any random color and assign them to any of those filters. So it's, sure. it's very subjective. But if you want something that's familiar, um, and the reason they pick those colors is because of the contrast it provides. So you can really see where those different gases are in the nebula. Yeah, I thought that, but I, I just never knew. You know? So uh, mm-hmm. the other question is closer to Earth. Um, we've talked about light pollution, but what about all the man-made satellites and space junk? I mean, I think I read SpaceX wants to put 12,000 satellites up for an Internet thing. Um, is that yeah. is that a problem for this type of work you're doing? So it is obviously a massive topic in this kind of hobby right now. Um, everyone is super concerned about it. Um, the reality is for this, the type of imaging that I do is basically pretty picture imaging. I'm not doing any real science, although I could capture like a new asteroid or a new uh you know, comet or something, and, and that would be considered science. Yeah, the, the the Earth curling performa. We we talked about that. Right, right. <laughs> so, um, but the software is sophisticated enough that so when I image throughout a night and I take say a thousand images, I capture dozens of satellites flying in front of the telescope, um, and they appear as a streak of light because it's a long exposure. The satellite is moving quickly. And so it looks like a streak. Uh, Airplanes also cross in front of the telescope lens. Um, And so you'll get a trail of lights from the wings of the airplane. But the software is sophisticated enough that it can look at the frame before and the frame after, and it can decide within a certain threshold range, these are pixels that don't belong here. And it can remove them out of the image. So for what I do, there's virtually no effect uh, on the number of satellites that are up there. Um, They do not interfere with imaging. Um, However, if you're doing actual science and you're looking at a specific star um, and you're trying to calculate the variability of brightness, you know, that star is a star that changes. Maybe you're looking for planets around it or something like that. It's important in that line of work that you don't have satellites passing in front of you. So it actually, it affects scientists a lot more than it affects somebody like me, who's just an imager. So it is, it is a real concern for the scientific community, but it is not a big concern for somebody like me. This episode of the Mac power users is brought to you by direct mail, create and send great looking email newsletters with direct mail an easy-to-use email marketing app designed exclusively for the Mac. Go to directmailmac.com MPU to learn more. If you're looking to grow your customer base, connect with fans, or build a following this year, a super cost-effective way to do that is through email. For over 15 years, Direct Mail for Mac has been the go-to email marketing application for businesses, nonprofits, schools, and other organizations who want to expand their reach and connect with customers. And best of all, it's designed just for the Mac. 
so you can get your work done in half the time using the Max technologies you've grown to love, like drag and drop, keyboard shortcuts, integration with other apps, and more. Direct Mail has eye-catching templates that are infinitely customizable and look great on all devices. Direct Mail has helpful customer service staffed by real humans. There's no chatbots or AI, just friendly folks ready to help and at no extra charge. Send your first campaign today with a free download of Direct Mail. Listeners of this podcast will save 10% off their full-feature pricing plans. Head over to directmailmac.com slash mpu to experience the top-rated email marketing app for Mac and see how you can help your business grow. Our thanks to Direct Mail for their support of the Mac Power users and all of Relay FM. So one thing that's cool about all of this technology is that it it puts it in the hands of everyday people, right? You don't have to be associated with a research institution or have access to some giant telescope. There's a lot of things that people can do to advance science right in their own backyard. What are some examples of that? With zero hardware at all, no telescope, no camera, there are lots of kind of um, citizen science programs to do things like um, map the moon, the craters on the moon, map the features of planets, map the asteroids. There was a big project um, where they mapped the uh, kind of the rocks on the surface of the asteroid Bennu, which they're attempting to land a satellite there. And basically, thousands of people downloaded images that were taken by the satellite of the asteroid, and they went millimeter by millimeter over the surface of it, cataloging every boulder and piece of rubble on the surface of that asteroid looking for suitable places for the satellite to land. And that's very easy to get into and to volunteer for. There were some people that looked at over a thousand images at over about an average of about 45 minutes per image. That's kind of something that's, that's really interesting to do that, if you have an interest, the work is out there mm-hmm. for regular people to take up. Well, you were and you were saying also that even if you don't have a telescope or a fancy sensor, you can still process these images. Yeah, so uh, there's the Hubble Legacy Archive where they catalog every image that's taken. Um, they, you know, they use the same monochrome sensors to take pictures of nebulas and galaxies. Uh, exposing them in all the different colors. And you can download that data. You can search for the object, whether it's a a galaxy that you have an interest in or a nebula. You can download that image data, use the same software to process it. And in fact, most of um, the images that you see out there are processed by citizens, you know, uh, that are not part of NASA. In fact, the latest images that Hubble took of Jupiter, I want to say a month or two ago, those were processed by just a regular person that had a high interest in doing that. They downloaded those images out of the the data archive and went to town, produced some great results. Another fun example is JunoCam. Juno is a spacecraft studying Jupiter currently, and there is a community you can join and suggest photos that NASA will take, and then you can go and process them and, and share your results. It's, it's a great way to get involved as just a, 
a normal citizen who wants to play with this stuff. Yeah, and and if you do have telescope gear, you can actually do some things that that were originally thought could only be done from satellites, uh, like detecting exoplanets. I've linked to uh, a thread in the show notes that shows how you can use off-the-shelf equipment to measure the variability of light coming from a star, indicating that there's an exoplanet orbiting it. It's amazing that this type of science can be done with an ordinary telescope. To me, I would have thought that you'd you'd have to have something uh, orbiting the Earth to do that kind of work with, but turns out you don't. I wonder what the sensor is in the Hubble. I mean, it's been up there a long time. You may be getting a better sensor in your Sony camera than, oh, yeah. than the one in the Hubble telescope. And it also has to survive in space, which is a, something right. your Sony camera doesn't have to do. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> um, well, let, let's uh, wrap up talking about, we've talked about a lot of software. But let's Let's call out some software, both for the Mac and iOS, that you think would be fun for people interested in this. Yeah, so um, Sky Safari Pro is my kind of go-to planetarium app. Basically, it it'll it's kind of one of those apps that you can use the built-in compass to kind of aim it at the sky and see what's out there. Sky Safari Pro is available both for the Mac and iOS. Uh, it synchronizes between the two devices. Uh, it has features like the ability to to put in your, your telescope. And, and what that does is, is when you're, you're using it to look at objects, if you have your telescope information in there, you can see how big that object would appear when looking through your telescope or using the camera. Uh, it's great for being able to decide what, what I want to take a picture of. You know, and I use it a lot for research, just for kind of plugging around my, my visible sky from my backyard I'll look and see what's going to be up tonight. You can move the timeline forward or backwards so I can say, well, if I'm not going to start imaging till 8 p.m., what's going to be in the sky at that time? And out of that stuff, what's going to fit into my the view of my telescope? So it's a really cool application. Um, it also offers telescope control. So if you have a computerized telescope, you can connect Sky's Safari Pro up to your telescope and you can point your telescope with it. You can just pan around looking at the sky, picking objects and say, go look at this object. That's pretty cool. Yeah, fun. Observer Pro, that was one I mentioned earlier. That allows you to create a custom horizon, which you can then export and pull into Sky Safari Pro. But it will just give you a straight on object list of things that fit within the view of your telescope and within your horizon. So I use it too, also for research. AstroPixel Processor, again, I mentioned that was for kind of pre-processing your images. Even if you take um, DSLR photos of the Milky Way and you want to take multiple images in succession, uh, you can combine them all with something like AstroPixel Processor. Uh, And that's a great tool to kind of... It will give you better results with multiple exposures than a single exposure with your DSLR would. So that's kind of a nice piece of software to have. And I think most of the software, they give you free trials. So you can try it out, see how it works for you. K-Stars, that's that's what I use to, um, to do all my imaging with. 
So it's kind of a more advanced program. It's uh, open source, which is nice. It's got a quite a big development community around it. It gets updated uh, probably monthly with new features, but it does something beyond just pressing the, the shutter button on your camera. It controls the mount. It controls the, the guiding of the, of the mount. It controls the image sequence that I want to shoot. So I can say I want it to image this particular galaxy or nebula, and I want it to use these three filters, and I want it to take a sequence of 100 shots in the first filter, 200 in the second, and then 100 on the third. It basically allows for full automation of your uh, imaging process, which for me is great. Uh, it allows me to sleep at night and not have to stay up all night, <laughs> which is you know one downside to, to this hobby. Um, stars are only available at night. Which, you know, unless you want to photograph the sun, which there is equipment for that, but uh, never point a regular telescope at the sun. Uh, you will burn a hole through your head. But uh, KSTARS is a great program for kind of automating that process. So, you know, I'll get all the equipment set up, I'll get it all aligned, and then I'll pick out my objects for the night and I'll hit go. And it will take care of all the business for me and I'll wake up in the morning with the directory full of pictures. Um, PixInsight, again, that's kind of like the de facto standard for post-processing your images. It's a little pricey. I think it's a few hundred dollars. Um, but it is kind of the real deal when it comes to processing astrophotography images. Um, you'll, you'll, if you can master it, uh, your images will only be better because of it. Yeah, it is interesting that there's always, you know, no matter what, the hobby is there's always something that is the go-to software for it. I guess this is the one. Yeah, for sure. And Astro DSLR, that is a great native Mac application. Most of these programs are not native apps. They're kind of cross-compiled for multiple systems, but Astro DSLR and Observatory, um, those are some native Mac apps, and what's great about them is they can take advantage of all the features that the Mac offers, that the OS offers. Um, so whether that's like, you know, GPU accelerated views or just a nice, clean interface, you know, you never know what you're going to get with some program that's cross-compiled across multiple systems. Yeah. But uh, this program is great. Um, basically, you tether your DSLR to your laptop. And, um, and then you can pick your exposure, um, how many images you want to take. You can tell it how to name your photos is a great application just for even just regularly tethered shooting. This is probably the app that you want to use on the Mac. Now we talked earlier about getting started with a, 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 an SLR camera and a tripod, but there is the problem with the stars moving, you know, on these longer images. Will this application work, or do you need to get some additional hardware to make that work? Yeah, so this this company, um, they make a separate program called Astro Guider, which if you're using a telescope connected to a DSLR, you would want to use those two in conjunction. Uh, you'd need the guide scope and the guide uh, camera as well. And that's what that software would manage is, is the guiding but Astro DSLR in and of itself will not 
it does not deal with the rotation of the earth. It's just taking the captures. Okay. And so it's, it's great, great for that. You, you can use a sky tracker with your DSLR and sky trackers are unbelievably simple pieces of hardware. They basically, you align them to the North pole because all the stars rotate around the North pole. Uh, well, I should say Polaris, the, the North star, not the North pole. That's how the rotation appears from earth. That's the most stationary star. And so you align the sky, the sky tracker with Polaris and your DSLR mounts to the top of it. And then the sky tracker moves with the rotation of the earth. So it's moving your camera equipment and your lens. And um, it tracks well enough up to about 300 millimeters focal length. So you could put, you know, a 250 millimeter zoom lens, a 300 millimeter zoom lens on there. And you can actually image galaxies or nebulas with your DSLR and a sky tracker. You do not need really advanced hardware. And sky trackers are a couple hundred dollars. You put them, they mount to, to the top of your tripod, and then you mount your, your camera to the sky tracker. And its whole job is just to move in sync with the stars. You don't need a guide scope. Uh, it's, it's fairly simplistic, but it does a great job. And if you look at some of the, some of the websites, uh, like Astrobin that I've mentioned, and you search for some of the names of the sky trackers, you'll see what kind of images are achievable with those devices. And it's pretty amazing what people can do. Cool. Well, Andrew, uh, thank you so much for joining us, telling us about this, this world. People want to learn more. Where can they find your site? Where can they find you online? Yeah, so I, I post all my images on Instagram, uh, Mac Observatory. Uh, you can also contact me through my website. I've got a contact link on the bottom of the page, macobservatory.com. And I, I am happy to answer any beginner questions, uh, any questions that you have, really, even if they're a little more advanced. But um, one thing that makes this um, hobby succeed is outreach, which is just amateur astronomers willing to help novice users get into the hobby. And so please feel free to contact me. I have a feature request for your website. <laughs> All right. You need to format some of these pictures for uh, iPad and iPhone wallpaper. They're such good images. Oh, yeah. Sure. All right. Well, everybody, go over to Mac Observatory. I love reading about your equipment, but also the images are just amazing. <laughs> you know, it really is. And thanks for uh, all your time today sharing this with the audience. We really appreciate it. We are the Mac Power Users. You can find us over on relay.fm slash MPU. And thank you to our sponsors today. And that's our friends over at 1Passwords. File, fresh books, and direct mail. And we will see you next week.